the character and the attributes of God uh, based in the Psalms. And our psalm this morning comes from Psalm 2. And our theme is the wrath of God. If you are new or visiting, welcome. <laughs> I like to make a good first impression, um, just so you know what you're getting yourselves into. Let's uh, hear God's word to us from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them of iron and dash them to pieces like potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Pray with me. Lord, we uh, need your help to understand um, this expression of your character, your wrath. Um, Father, I pray that we would see that your judgment and your wrath is, as ultimately serves the purposes of your love for this world and the integrity of your creation. Uh, stretch our minds and our imaginations and our hearts as we grapple with a topic that we generally don't want to think about. But help us know, Lord, that in Jesus Christ, you are the God that comes to us with gentleness and love. And yet you, even as you do this, you do not cease to be the God of justice and the God who will judge all. So lead us this morning in your word and speak to us in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I have a very troubling statistic for you, a Bible statistic. If you were to read um, from front to back the Bible and you were to have two columns, one in which you would put references to the wrath of God and judgment, anger, fury, and one in which you, a column that you could mark as references to the love and mercy of God, the number of references to the wrath and judgment of God would outnumber the number of references to the love of God. And I'm speaking here just by sheer volume of references. The, the amount of, whether direct or indirect, attention and space that the Bible gives to speaking of God's wrath and judgment is substantial. More so, actually, than the love of God, which is surprising. And I'm not even speaking here of the Old Testament. It's inclusive of the New Testament as well. Of course, in the New Testament, there's less sort of fulsome 
volume of references, but I actually went through every single book of the New Testament looking for references to the wrath of God, and every single one, whether direct or somewhat indirect, had a reference except for the book of Philemon. So all the Gospels, Acts, Romans, Paul's epistles, and when you look actually at the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, um, the book of Revelation speaks more about wrath and judgment than any other book in the New Testament. In fact, it feels like it belongs in the Old Testament. And so you, you, even you're thinking, well, maybe, maybe the Bible gets it right at the end, right? <laughs> the wrath and judgment of God is a consistent theme that you see throughout the Psalms as well. In our Psalm, um, you probably saw it. Uh, let me just give you a few of the verses from that Psalm. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them, that is the nations, in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. It's speaking of God's anointed one. It says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. A couple other Psalm references for you. Psalm 21. Your hand will find out all your enemies your right hand will find out all who of those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire will consume them. Psalm 110, which is the most quoted um, psalm and also the most quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament. Psalm 10 says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath and he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, and he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Psalm 78, which is a, a psalm, history psalm, looking back at the way God has interacted with Israel and saved them, speaking of God's judgment on the Egyptians when the, the, the people of Israel were, or the Hebrews were in Egypt. It says that God let loose on them, that is the Egyptian, his burning anger, wrath, indignation, distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. Uh, one could add hundreds, hundreds of references to ones like these. So what, what are we to do with this depiction of God? This is not easy for us to make sense of. And, and it's not even just a, a question of our current cultural environment. I, I would think that this would be difficult material at no matter what your culture and time that you live in. But I do think, especially in our own climate and culture, this is very difficult because in the past 150 years in the United States and in Western countries, we have kind of experienced, undergone what you might call a domestication of God, of the person of God. Um, we more and more uh, make God in our own image. God becomes more and more like us. Remember that song I quoted you guys from Joan Osborne's song? What if God is like one of us? A slob like one of us? A stranger on the bus trying to find his way home? Right, like that's, that's our image of God. God is like one of us. Or, or God is all love. God is love. Um, he accepts me for who I am. He wants the best for me. He wants me to be happy. He's kind of like a kindly old grandfather that dotes upon 
uh, uh, dotes upon us and rarely disagrees with us, right? That's our image of God. But, but this is what I mean by domestication of God. You know, you think about what it means to domesticate an animal like a cat and you declaw it, um, you neuter it so that it doesn't tear up your furniture and pee in the corners, right? And that's a little bit what we've done with God in our culture. We've domesticated God. And it's not just uh, liberal, progressive churches and minded people who do this. I, I think this is consistent across the board, even in conservative and traditional evangelical churches as well. A theologian named H. Richard Niebuhr uh, back in the 1930s was reflecting on American Christianity, and he, he aptly describes the sort of anodyne optimism of American Christianity as a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And I, I don't think much has changed. Uh, we are deeply uncomfortable speaking and understanding God's wrath and judgment. Uh, but again, I, I want to be clear. Um, the wrath and judgment of God is a difficult topic no matter what your culture. And don't hear me as saying, oh man, if we could only get back to the good old days of old time religion, we'd we talk about judgment and wrath and sin and we didn't have to be apologetic about it. That's not what I'm saying. Because the reality is that oftentimes my experience is people who want to talk about judgment and wrath today do it in a way that so distorts the character of God that it's as bad as if you didn't talk about it at all. At, at all. The reality is, though, this is a troubling theme, but one we cannot ignore. The prominence and the centrality that the Bible gives to expressions of God's wrath is unavoidable if we are honest readers of the Bible. But to recognize this reality is not simply uh, an unfortunate and I'm sorry, regrettable fact about God. You're like, man, we wish God wasn't like this, but it's just kind of who he is, and we sort of make our peace with it, and we've got other things we can really hold on to. A kind of grudging acceptance of this. But having a proper understanding of the wrath of God as an attribute is central to having an integrated view of the person of God. An integrated view of who this God is. And let me put a really fine point on it. If we are to speak in any meaningful way about God and justice or the love of God, you have to also speak about the wrath of God. No wrath, no justice. No judgment, no salvation. And this means that, that the exercise of God's wrath, properly understood in the Bible, is, is, is a function and is integral to the exercise of God's love. So that our attempts to excise references to God's wrath or reflection on that, um, to cut it out of our view of God, is really to lose the God of the Bible and the God of salvation. And so that's my, my goal here. I'm probably going to take a little longer this morning because I have to give care and attention to making some really important distinctions. Hopefully I won't go too long. Um, but I want you to see, that's my main argument, that to understand the love of God and God's proper love in this world, you have to understand how his wrath relates to that. Now the first must understand I want you to clear up right now from the beginning is a view that somehow love and wrath are in contradiction 
with one another in the person of God. Almost like God's schizophrenic, right? He's toggling back and forth. Do I want to be loving or do I want to be wrathful, right? That tends to be how we think about it because in human experience, that is how it is. Wrath and love, and as expressed by human beings, almost 99% of the time never is uh, coordinate. They are in contradiction to one another. So there's this temptation to see wrath and love as two emotions in God that are kind of dueling it out and fighting it out, and one for dominance. And, and if this is the case in God, then that statistic I shared at the beginning has to be really disheartening, right? Because at the end of the day, you're like, well, I guess wrath wins. Not, love doesn't win, wrath wins. But I want to introduce you to another attribute of God, one that's very seldom spoken in church, um, that is really important for us to understand how wrath and love fit in the person of God. It's, it's what, it's called the doctrine of simplicity. I bet you never had a sermon on the doctrine of divine simplicity, have you? You're like, what? Uh, in the Belgic Confession, one of our confessions, it, it, the very first line says this. It says, uh, we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single, simple, spiritual being whom we call God. So, God is a simple being. That's not to say that God is a simplistic being. And this, I know this, sounds, this might sound negative or strange. Like, what do you mean God is a simple being? To say that God is a simple being, um, one of the, it means that he's not made up of parts. God is not a composite of a bunch of different things. See, that's, that's the, the simplicity of God, or God as simple. That's one of the ways that God is distinguished from human beings and from creatures. Because as creatures, we are, we are composite. We are made, made up of many different parts. Body, soul, mind, spirit, even our, our, the organism of our body. You know, I've got a heart and lungs and kidney, and it's possible for me to live without a kidney. I could just have one kidney. I don't function as well. But it's also possible for the parts to sometimes be in tension or contradiction with one another. And this applies as well to, to our emotions. So in human beings, love and wrath or love and anger tend to be uh, a contradiction, confusion, warring with one another. But when we say God is simple, what we're saying is that, that God is, is not composite. He is, he's not made up of a bunch of different parts that are sort of have to function together. What this means for, as we understand his character and attributes, that in, in God, love and wrath are never in competition. They're never dueling with one another. All, they are in perfect concord and symmetry with one another as part of his essence. Inseparable. And I think this is really important to see. So when you see um, references to the wrath of God or the justice of God, and then you read about God's mercy and compassion, don't see those as somehow contradictions. They are contradictions in our experience often. That's how we experience them. But in God, they are not. When God exercises wrath, he does not cease to be love. When he exercises mercy, he does not cease to be just. That, that in a nutshell, is the doctrine of simplicity. Now, I know that's really abstract. So let's look at this and apply this a little bit more as we get into this psalm. I want you to see the relationship between wrath and justice in the psalm. What is God's anger a response to according to the psalmist? In verse 1, he, he, he gives us actual direct dialogue from the nations. 
He asked, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointing one, saying, let us burst the bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. God's anger, God's wrath, is a response to the defiant rebellion of the nations that are in open revolt against him as the Lord. And the psalmist describes their behavior as raging and plotting, scheming, right? And God in his anger is a righteous response to the defiance and rebellion of the nations against his reality as God and his rule, right? It's very just and reasonable that God would respond in this way, given what the situation is. So, so when we speak about the wrath of God, this wrath is always righteous and completely just. It's never an overreaction on God's part. It's not God losing his cool emotionally. See, again, as human beings, when we lose our cool, when we get angry, the vast majority of the time, not always, but the majority of the time, it's hasty. It's not fully informed by all the facts and evidence of what happened. It's often a reaction, reactionary, over the top. Rarely do we understand the situation fully, and rarely is our anger constructive. Usually it creates more injustice, even if it is a response to something that is unjust. But when God expresses his anger and wrath, it is perfect righteousness. It is completely fitting. It is never an overreaction. It is never a judgment that, fought, that fails be, to be fully informed. He is the all-knowing one. He is the omniscient one. There's nothing about a situation that he does not see or perceive. And so when he renders a judgment, you can know that it is completely just. Again, unlike human anger, which almost always adds more injustice to an unjust situation, God's anger is justified and appropriate and actually leads towards the restoration of justice. That's a really important piece, right? Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, but it still seems like God's anger or wrath, attributing that to God, seems beneath God, beneath the dignity of God, right? Surely God could exercise justice without wrath. Why does God need to get so emotional about it, right? Anger is, in humans, we often consider anger as a, a very unbecoming emotion. And how much more of God, right? So it, it seems beneath God to, to get angry, right? He's God. Why is he getting so angry? Does he feel threatened? Now, I think one of the dangers we run into when we ask these questions that we have to just be aware of is that we have to be aware that when we, we, wanna, when we go this way, what we risk doing is denying that God himself is a person. We run the risk of, of denying the personhood of God and that he actually has a real relationship with creation. To ascribe emotions to God, we have to recognize is a very different thing than ascribing emotions when we speak about emotions to ourselves. Emotion for human beings is always involves a body. <laughs> to have an emotion is to experience something in your body. It's not just a, something in your mind. God doesn't have a body. We often talk in the Bible, the Bible uses what's called anthropomorphic language, which means um, we use human uh, images to speak about God, right? So we talk about the outstretched hand of the Lord. We talk about the eyes of the Lord who sees all. 
or we pray and say the Lord hears us. But God doesn't have an ear or eyes or not a hand, literally. And yet, yet those images are important because they communicate something important that God, again, really relates to creation. And so when we talk about the Lord or the love of the Lord or God repenting or changing his mind, what, what the scriptures are trying to tell us is that this God is, he is a person. He has real interaction with us. And yet there's ways in which it doesn't apply to God in quite the same way it does to us. But what I love about this psalm is, is look at, it uses very rich uh, range of emotional uh, images to talk about God. Uh, look, at, um, look, look, at, look at the way he uh, describes it. This is God's response to the rebellion of the nations. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision or scorn, and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them with his fury. And what we see here is the God's personality on full display with rich emotional images. God laughs. This is the only place in the Bible that says that God laughs. Laughter is an emotion. Laughter is an emotional reaction to something that's funny or ridiculous, right? And the rebellions of the nations is funny in a kind of ridiculous way to God. It would sort of be like this. Imagine that I was uh, on a basketball court in a neighborhood in Milwaukee, and Giannis was there, and I challenged Giannis to a game of one-on-one. And then with complete and utter seriousness, I started talking about how I'm going to dominate him, right? I mean, you can imagine, he would just laugh, right? And if he even played the game with me, everything I threw up, he'd just swat it down, and he'd just dunk on all over me, right? That's kind of, that's, that's basically what's going on. It's so ridiculous. When the nations rebel and plot and scheme, God's like, really? That's really, that's funny. That's really funny. That's so ridiculous, it's funny. But it's also deserving of scorn because it is, in a menacing way, out of touch with reality. But you might ask, but why, but why, does, God need, why does God need to get angry about it, right? Why not just put us on our place, dunk on us a couple times? Be done with it. And here again, I want to just remind you of the personhood of God and the seriousness of sin. See, it's important to keep in mind that the rebellion of the nations, which is our sinful turning away from God and rejection of God, is more than a schoolyard taunt. It's more, it's, it's sinister, it's evil, it's destructive. It's a full-scale attack and repudiation of the person and the character of God. The rejection of God by the nations is their open scorn and hatred towards the one who created them, towards the one who continues to sustain their life, even as they attack. It is utter insanity. <laughs> utter insanity. That, that's what human sin really is before God. If, you, if God really is the creator, and we turn and we rebel, and we're like, we're going to dominate you, God. That's why God laughs. But it's also scorns, because it is absolutely deadly. How might we view a person that allowed themselves to be continually abused and mistreated and assaulted by those that are around them and could do something about it but never did? 
She's like, oh, it's okay, you know, you just keep hitting me, keep, you know, insulting me, keep sort of, you know, hating me. <laughs> I think we would see, you know, there's something pathological right there, right? That a person that refused to defend themselves, in a sense, to, to def- or to define themselves over against those who hate them, we would question whether they're really a person at all, whether they had any integrity. And again, that's where when we see expressions of God's wrath, what it, you, you have to see there behind it is his commitment to protect the integrity of his person as God and to safeguard his glory and perfection. And remember, God is not a human like we are. He is a person, but he is, he's the original person. He is perfect and glorious. But wrath also serves a really important function in communicating to us the seriousness of sin and rebellion. And perhaps you've had this experience as a parent when your kids are doing something that they should not be doing, and it's potentially harmful and dangerous to them. And you tell them multiple times, don't do that. Stop. You're going to hurt yourself. You tell them, you tell them, and they, they keep doing it. And then eventually you're like, you get angry, and you have to raise your voice a little bit before they understand the seriousness of what you're telling them and how it can do harm. And again, that's in part the function of the wrath of God in the scriptures. It communicates to us something very important, that sin poses to us a dangerous risk. It is absolutely ruinous. It leads to our death and our damnation. If we are being honest, too, (laughs) one of the reasons we don't like to talk about the wrath of God and the judgment of God is because we want to downplay the seriousness of our sins, right? Like, oh, it's not that bad, you know? If God's a big person, like, you know, he can just slough it off, you know? Part of the reason we don't like this topic is because we want to believe that our sins are really not that bad. And this, again, is the image of God as a kindly old grandpa that will forgive, you know? But the wrath of God reveals to us the sinfulness of sin. It lets us know that there is grave danger and consequences to what we do. And if we refuse to respond and repent and to turn the other way, destruction awaits us. That is just, I mean, is not a popular message. We don't like that. But it's everywhere in the Scriptures. The expression of God's anger, though, I think is really important to see is it's not an end in itself. God does not need to express anger or wrath in order to be God. It's not like he has all this anger and wrath inside that he's just been building up. He just needs to get it out somewhere. In order, you know, that's how we are as a human sometimes, right? We feel like you've got to get it out. That's not God. Wrath is expressed not for God's sake. It's expressed for our sake. It's expressed for the sake of justice and righteousness and God's good creation. And that's why you see um, the expression of anger uh, in the psalm is followed by a call to the nations to repent. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And when you, when you actually see uh, those references to wrath throughout the scriptures, time and time again, they're, they're often, not always, but o- most often paired with a call to repentance. Turn the other way reorient yourself to what is true and what is just and what is right. Get on the path of life. 
But wrath also means, and, and this is important, especially in our culture, it also means that God is not indifferent to injustice. God is not indifferent to the plight of the innocent, to those who are oppressed, to those who suffer violence. You know, we don't have a problem with, with wrath and, in, and, wrath and uh, anger at injustice in our culture. We rarely think twice about it. So why would we think that God should just be cool and calm and collected about it? God hates injustice. God hates injustice. And his wrath communicates this. Here, this, this is a, a verse from Isaiah 10. Woe. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of judgment and the ruin that will come from afar? God is angry at injustice. He is not indifferent to it. And the wrath of God is, a, is an expression of his retributive justice. That he is the one that intervenes on the behalf of vulnerable creatures to put to right the destruction of creation, of his precious creation. So, the wrath of God and the justice of God. Hopefully you see how these fit together a little bit more. It's one thing, though, I think, to see that connection between the wrath of God and the justice of God. It's another thing, I think, to see in connection to love. This seems like an impossible contradiction, right? Love and wrath. How do they fit together? And here I want to give you a really important principle. The wrath of God is ordered to the love of God. The wrath of God is ordered to the love of God, not the other way around. Wrath and love and God are not co-equal parts or attributes. And even though there might be more volumes of references to wrath and judgment, that doesn't necessarily mean that somehow wrath is more important or, or the predominant disposition of God towards the world. Wrath and love, again, are not two principles or aspects of God that are dueling it out. It's not even the case that, that, that there are two things that need to be sort of balanced, like on a knife edge. Love is ordered, I'm sorry, wrath is ordered to love. And properly speaking, wrath, the wrath of God is not an essential attribute of God in the way we think that love is. See, if there were no evil in the world, if there were no rebellion and no sin and no injustice, we would know nothing of the wrath of God. Wrath only becomes manifest in the face of what opposes God. Wrath only becomes manifest in the face of what opposes God and what opposes his perfect and righteous will for creation. So in a world without sin, we wouldn't know anything of the wrath of God, but that's not the case in a world about his love. We would know something about his love. We would know something about his goodness because love and goodness are the impulses, are the guiding uh, you know, drive of God as the creator and as the redeemer. They are the motivational character quality of God. And that means this, that the wrath of God is not in opposition to the love of God, but as, is a function of God's love. You might call it the backside of God's love. The wrath of God is the backside of God's love. See, wrath happens when something opposes and resists God's love. 
That's, where, that's so important. Wrath is what happens when we oppose God's love. And the possibility of that happening has to do that we, God created a world in which he wanted to have a real relationship where he endowed image bearers with freedom. And we have used that freedom to turn away from God. And we use that freedom to continue to keep our faces turned away from God. So what option does God have? <laughs> Should God just be like, okay, well, they guess they change things. God's love, God's wrath is an expression of his fierce and protective love for his own glory, but also for the integrity and the justice of his creation. Um, in the book of Hosea, there's an image of God as an angry uh, mother bear robbed of her cubs. Hosea 13, like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. See, again, we have this image of God in his wrath as like a drunken father that comes home and just loses his cool on his kids or wife. That is not at all. The image is more like a mother whose children are threatened by harm or violence. And the love of a mother bear for her cubs is a ferocious love, right? That bear will kill you if you try to harm her cubs. It's a fierce love. Woe to you if you infringe harmfully on this love. It will rip you open. And if you're a mother or a father, you have a sense of this, right? When your kids are in danger or somebody threatens your children, like, you'll find a part of you that you didn't know existed. To defend at the cost of your own life and to exerting uh, extreme force in order to protect that which is precious. Again, this is what I mean by the backside of God's love. The wrath of God is the backside of his love. That wrath is always ordered to his love. It's not the other way around. Okay. What is striking about this psalm is that it is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And it is applied very directly to the person of Jesus. The writers of the New Testament clearly understand the reference to God's anointed, which in the Hebrew is the word Messiah, as referring to Jesus and the reference to the Son as well. But there is a big disconnect between the content of this psalm as you, you read it as a whole um, and, and the actual ministry of Jesus in his first coming. The psalmist clearly sees God's anointed, the Messiah, as an instrument that will execute judgment and justice upon the nations. He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them with pieces like a potter's vessel. And yet, and yet what we see in the Gospels is not Jesus wielding a rod of iron and destroying the nations like a clay pot. You don't see that. Instead, what you see is Jesus becoming the object of the nation's raging and of their plotting. And this is precisely what happens on the cross. The nations, the Romans and the Jewish nation and its religious leaders raged against the Lord. They plotted his death. And instead of landing blows with a rod on his enemies, Jesus suffers the blows himself from his enemies. Instead of breaking the nations like bulls, his own body is broken. Now, this is why people had such a hard time recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, as the, as the king that would save Israel. Because if you grew up in 
in Israel. You read these Psalms, like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. You have this image of this king who will come and conquer and destroy and vanquish the enemies of God with the power of his might. And now what you see is this Jesus who himself is vanquished and who is broken. And this, friends, is the mystery of the cross, the mystery of atonement. In the cross, what we have is God judging the world. In the cross, what we have is a revelation of, sin, of the sinfulness of sin. In the cross, what we have is the justice of God, in a sense, being satisfied. And at the same time, what we have in the cross is a demonstration of the love of God, that Jesus, who is the judge, the instrument of judgment, himself becomes judged in our place. And by being judged in our place sets us free from the tyranny and the judgment that our own sins deserved. The wrath of God properly understand, uh, helps us understand how costly and how precious God's love is. Because God put himself in our place and took from us. Which means that there is grace and there is forgiveness for the worst sinners, the most unjust man or woman, but it came at a great cost of God's anointed one. He entered into judgment on our behalf. He became the judge who was judged in our place. Now, someday Jesus will come again. He will not come um, like a lamb. <laughs> he will come like a lamb, but this lamb will have a sword, and he will execute the final judgment. But in this in-between time, he holds out mercy and grace and forgiveness and compassion, and he calls us to repent. He calls us to see how much he loved us and what he was able to give. As, again, the prophet Isaiah saw, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Pray with me. Lord, what a great mystery, an awful, awesome, humbling mystery that we deserve the judgment as rebellious nations, and yet, Lord, you and your king, your anointed one, entered into judgment on our behalf, and there's so much that we don't understand, but what we do know, Lord, is that your mercy and your, your grace is real, and so is your justice, and Lord, we ask that you would make us just just as your people in this world of injustice, and that we might know in a very deep way the costliness of your grace and forgiveness towards us. As we come to this table, Lord, let us reflect and meditate on the way in which Jesus became the shattered pot for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.